0: I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's a special episode. So the guest is Stan Seawitch and I'll talk about Stan before getting there that the topic is so important to me. So we're talking about engagement in the workforce, how to build intentionally build and benefit from a positive engaged culture people who having team members who are eager to be there learning they feel that they're contributing something bigger than themselves they're fulfilled in the work they're safe and they are eager to deploy discretionary effort above and beyond the roles job description essentially how do you create that so if you are leading an organization or a team or whatever and you think that sounds like something you want to get in place maybe you've done the work to set mission vision value and you're trying to figure out where to go from there i think this episode's for you and we talk about this at the beginning but this is such an important topic from my perspective i think it's arguably the thing i'm, I'm most passionate about of how, how do you do this and how this is so important if you're trying to make an impact in any industry so especially in the mobility industry here if you have a technology you're trying to somehow make an innovation in this industry, you need to create an effective organization to do that, and that's what we're talking about here. And Stan is 100% the perfect guest for this. So he's a friend and advisor, someone I personally work with, and our organization works with. And he really knows himself, so he knows this stuff. So he calls himself a business psychologist. He says it's saying that he's made human behavior within the context of creating economic interdependencies his life's work, and I've seen it firsthand, he's, again, exceptional in this space, done a lot of great things to get him to this point. One of them being supporting WD-40 for 20 years as a consultant and a, a direct team member retiring in 2021 as VP of global organization development. If you're not familiar with their trajectory and the path that they took they did some remarkable things during that time period and are uh, quite a role model of an organization. So. We, we, we talk, we cover a lot of ground here and Stan gives an, an intro at the beginning, so I don't want to go any further on in the intro. But um, yeah, this is a really meaningful discussion for me. I hope you enjoy it as well. Please enjoy this conversation with Stan Seewitch Today I'm joined by Stan Seewitch. Stan, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Brandon. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited for this, uh, this discussion here. And, uh, I want to want to quickly set a stage set the stage here and explain a bit why so the the topic we'll be talking about is it's its culture, right and it's building off of and what we'll, we'll talk a bit about um, book you've written engage how w d forty built the engine of positive culture and we're talking about this idea of if someone's listening, if you've gone through the effort, if you care about building a positive, effective organization, maybe you've defined core values and you have them stated, but aren't really embodying that and living, realizing the benefits of a positive culture. We're talking about how, how do you actually do that? And how do you take the next step here? And this is super meaningful on, on two levels for me. So, so the first is the topic itself. And I think fu- fundamentally, like, this is one of the most important things for me, personally, and through my, my work. And the reason I'm so excited about being at Edison and the work I do is that I get the opportunity to. May it make a positive impact on our people, our, our our employees, our customers, our partners, our suppliers, our community. All of that is fundamentally one of the most important thing that I'm I'm trying to do personally. I also think it's critical for anyone within this space who's trying to make an impact. So, generally, I'm talking about topics on this podcast focused on building a safer, and more sustainable, more effective, and more accessible transportation ecosystem. Anyone who wants to do that starts with an innovation, it starts with technology, but you need to be able to build and run an effective organization to actually do that. So this topic itself is really fundamental and important and something I'm excited to, to dive into. And then the second piece of that is the fact that I get to do it with, with you here is uh, I think also just incredibly exciting. So you've had a tremendous impact on, on myself and I'm grateful for a lot that I've learned from you. I also think you're one of the best out there talking about this topic and the ability to make that step from this abstract kind of strategic idea and then drill down into how you actually put this stuff in practice. So incredibly excited for for the discussion. Um, with that, I, I guess, Sand, if you wouldn't mind kind of introducing a bit about yourself and your background, we can we can dive in here.
1: Sure, Brandon. Well, it's been a winding road these last five decades on the planet and earning a living. I can't say that uh, all of it has been planned, a lot of it has been adapting to the conditions and changes that I've encountered along the way, but we all do that. So I guess in summary, I'd say um, since I started in the world of work in the the mid-70s, I've had about half of my career building companies, I've started or co-founded four companies, and the other half was working for other businesses in a variety of functional roles, which included Operations, manufacturing, technical sales in the oil field industry, biotechnology, uh, electronic circuits, integrated circuits, and also uh, performing the role of an internal human resources executive for a total of about 15 years out of that, roughly 50 years. So most of my career has been either as a functional line leader outside of HR or as a business owner and leader of companies. I've also served on 13 private company boards and I've served on a couple of nonprofits. So my perspective is as a business investor and business owner, even though I might be advising people on the organizational and human aspects of it. My education was in psychology to the master's degree level in organizational psych, And at both the bachelor's and the master's a coursework I took, I emphasized physiological neuroscience approach to understanding human behavior and behavioralism. I found those to be extremely useful and important principles for a business because we're not clinical psychologists. I'm certainly not in the world of business, but the more you understand about the principles of human behavior, <clears throat> the more likely you can create the kind of culture and business performance that you're talking about, Brandon.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good, good background and there's a lot, uh, I'm sure that will come up through, through conversation where we can dive a bit deeper in, in a lot of these areas. But I think there's a, a good transition here. So you, you, you titled the book Engage, and this is something that we've talked about of engagement and the importance of this. So what, what in your mind is engagement in the workplace and why does that matter?
1: Well, the, the best definition that I think I've seen of engagement is when a person decides to apply discretionary effort above and beyond what's being asked to contribute to their own roles results, but also to help other people without being asked with the larger organization in mind. At WD40, which we'll talk about a little bit, where I spent nine years as head of HR and a total of 22 years, uh, including my advisory work with the company, we talked about, who do you think your team is? And I would ask that in our leadership lab coursework of the attendees. And some people would say, well, I've got five people on my team, and they have a small department. You ask somebody else, and they'd say, 552 people, because at that time, that's the number of people in the company in every country. So a truly engaged workforce more likely thinks of everyone in the company as their teammate. They apply discretionary effort and they go out of their way to help other people. They think long-term as well. They don't just think about the next year because they can see themselves in that future. So with that definition of engagement, the Gallup organization does an engagement survey both globally in the United States. I think it's every two years now. About 30 to 33% of U.S. employees consider themselves to be engaged by that definition, either engaged or strongly engaged. The rest are either disengaged or actively disengaged, which means in the latter term that they're actively working against the objectives of the organization. That means that in the United States, about two-thirds of employees are not engaged. Globally, it's almost 85%. And it it drives me crazy because the biggest opportunity we have for economic growth and quality of life is to work on the factors that cause people to feel engaged.
0: Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, those are some uh, some difficult stats to swallow, right? And uh, maybe, maybe quick quick detour on the, the WD WD forty piece, and then we'll get, we'll get back to this, this engagement thread. But um, I, I'm I imagine everyone, if not at least just about everyone listening to this, is familiar with the product that WD forty makes, or at least one of the products, right? Why I, I think very few people are f- likely familiar with uh, the company and the culture that have been built there. So, so why, uh, I don't know why, why, why should they care that you spent 15 years at WD40 and what, what happened during that time?
1: Well, as you said, people know this and the other specialist products that we have, uh, because it creates positive, lasting memories, and it's been out there solving problems for people for many decades. Well, that is one of the values of the company is create positive lasting memories in all of our relationships. And when that's a value, then it drives your behavior. We'll talk about this later uh, in terms of why values are important. It drives your, your behavior towards all of the aspects that create positive memories with your customers, your fellow employees, your suppliers, your regulatory agencies even that you have to deal with. Uh, the different countries that you're in and the different cultures that you have to apply it. And why that's important for WD 40, which, as you said, may not be widely known for its engaged culture, is because it's provided the platform for a an extremely stable and very intent upon success group of people. The largest reason for Voluntary separation from WD40 is retirement, so there's very low turnover, and that again allows people to think I have not just a job here, I have a journey here, and there are other things I can do in my my work with WD40. You'll talk to people who've worked with the company 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And they don't say it's one company that they work for because it's evolved and changed. They've done different things. It's been quite the journey.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I guess back to this, uh, and, and you're, you're touching on a piece of this, but why, why engagement matter, matters. And I, I'd be curious to have you expand maybe on, on two different aspects. So one, one is the personal side, right? So when, when you mentioned the the description and the definition here of applying discretionary effort, I don't know. Maybe someone hears that and like, well, I don't want to go above and beyond. I want to do my forty-hour, whatever number of hours of work, and and uh, go home and call it. At least for myself. And I, I think most people, if they actually get in the situation, like it's far better to have exciting work that you're engaged and you want to be invested and fulfilled and applying yourself towards solving difficult problems than it is to simply check the box and go home at the end of the week and kind of be watching the, the clock. So, so like, it feels to me like that's at least personally a huge aspect of why I want to be engaged and I want our team to be engaged. But then on the other side of it, like there's business results that can directly tie to this too. Right.
1: Well, and yes, the business results is basically as Gary Ridge, the former CEO of W40 would say is the applause you receive from having created an organization where people really want to be there. And want to stay there. The the difference between a highly engaged company's financial performance in good and bad times is significantly higher, as the research has shown, than those organizations where engagement isn't as high or is very low. And there there are six major factors that contribute to what makes people apply that discretionary effort and identify with an organization. As you just said, one of those is, what's the purpose? Why are we here? Another is the values. Do the values of the organization, as they are lived, align with my values as a person? Because when you talk to people, and in fact, I'm one of them, who oftentimes felt my personal values were at odds with the leadership of the organization I was in. I started my first company because I was fired from a job because my values didn't align with senior leadership. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me, although it was traumatic at the time. But when there is that alignment, then you can relax in in one sense and feel, oh, I have a reason to contribute to this company. It's, It's not just about the economic necessity, which is important, but now it's something larger than just the dollar. And in fact, that's where purpose and values are about. It's the purpose that we're serving and the values we apply that are more important than the dollars coming in or going out. If there's nothing more important than dollars, that is your purpose. Those are your values. And most people don't identify with that as an enduring, fulfilling set of values. I've not met anyone who committed themselves to money as their first motive, and was happy over the long haul. And
0: maybe an anecdote here, I think that, that ties in, but when I think of my, myself and engagement, like a, a recent situation comes to mind of, you know, I have toddler at home that I love, but there's it's also there's it's nice when he's out of the house and my, either the, my parents or the in-law takes him for, for the yeah. night. Right. And we have some, some peace and quiet in the, in the house and we have some time to ourselves. And last time that happened, it, we had a couple, couple hours, and you know, eat after dinner, sit and look at my wife and we're like, well, oh, what do we do? And my answer was legitimately, well, like I, I want to work. Like I want to do, like, I have a problem that I'm working on that is more fun to me than to solve than anything else i could be doing right now right and so and she's in the healthcare space in a place where at least the like that that idea is so foreign i think to most people that you could want to work in the evening and do it and be excited and fulfilled by that not just doing it because you feel like you have to and like it's a it's a chore and i guess i don't know, any any thoughts on that and then also like the the follow up question is like how is it realistic that so, of course, I'm I'm le- a leader in this business and I'm hoping to build it. And of course, I feel some ownership of it kind of by by the position, right? Like, is is it reasonable or realistic to expect that other levels of an organization can feel that same level of fulfillment and ownership?
1: Well, absolutely. And, and of course, it does change depending on your responsibilities. But the, the folks that I'll just talk about customer service people at WD-40 company, they're on the front lines every day. They're, they're handling calls about product shipments and order amounts and processing through supply chain and fulfillment, and they're handling all of the, the negative things, too, that occur when a train doesn't make it to the warehouse in time and the customer is waiting to fill their shelves. I, I would talk with a woman named Lisa there, who is just the epitome of positiveness, She always had a smile. She always had a joke. And she was on the front lines of this often contentious interaction with customers. And I asked her once, I said, why do you have such a a positive attitude? I don't want to assume anything. So I just want to ask you. And she said to me that she loves creating positive, lasting memories out of contentious, difficult conflict as her unique skill. She said to herself, I have this skill and our value of creating positive lasting memories is what my life is about. Hmm. So it aligned with her life and with her work and she couldn't think of a better role to play there, even though she didn't supervise other employees and had no aspirations to be an executive in the company or anything like that.
0: Oh, so, so two, two things come to mind One here. So first of all, I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. And it's cool, cool to hear. Um, is that something that I, I know there was a lot of intentional effort that went into building the culture and defining those values? Is that something that is a direct function of that effort? Or is there an element of luck that you can point to like, Hey, this, this perfect person just happened to find this role that they find fulfilling? I guess maybe let's, let's start and cut it off there. Like, do you think that, specific situation or a situation like that is an example of the effort that went into building that culture, or what role does luck play in that?
1: Well, the the two things that have to be in place for an individual to feel engaged is that they don't have an experience of their workplace that is contrary to their personal values. Even if that workplace didn't cite values or do anything conscious about it, but if they experience people's behavior can grow up with their own values, and, and every company has a set of values and a culture whether they do it consciously or not. The second element is their relationship with their immediate supervisor. They might work for a great person who cares about them and helps them grow, and that may be one person out of the leadership and no one else does that. So yes, an individual can find that type of role and fulfillment with a relationship with their immediate coach. What you don't get, though, which you you must uh, employ a systematic approach for, is a broad organization-wide consistency and congruency of all those principles operating wherever there are employees and, and leaders. It takes conscious effort, takes leadership at the top, and to pay attention to each of those six factors that contribute to engagement, that is really important. If you want it to be broad,
0: yeah, so maybe to, trying to to synthesize and say, say it a different way like the uh, it feels like even in a place that doesn't have the systematic effort, you can have bright spots. you can have people Absolutely. who just happen to find themselves in the right spot. you can have exceptional leaders who happen to who are there and can build teams and pockets of what we're talking about here. but it, exactly. it really takes the holistic system level effort if you want this to be the norm throughout the organization.
1: And and the difference is in the engagement scores. If the average organization has 30% engagement, then you could say 30% of the leaders understand what it takes and are applying that individually, if not collectively. At WD-40 company, for 16 years, it's had 93% engagement. You don't get that level without systematic, concerted, conscious effort.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you may, you already answered maybe a piece of this, but expanding on the question, so like the it's almost cliche at this point the the values on the wall, right, are like used as the effort that it that went into. Like, yeah, people either fundamentally realize that this is important, or they think it's a good marketing trend, or whatever, whatever the reason. But like the the effort to define some form of core values, make a communication, whether it's on the website, on the wall, internally. And like, so that, that happens and has happened pretty widely at this point, but it's very rare that those values are truly lived out and embodied and incorporated into the culture at, at a core level. And like that, the business really lives out those values. So why, maybe the first question, why do you think that is?
1: Well, all elements of what it takes to create high engagement takes conscious effort. And that conscious effort is difficult it requires leaders specifically starting at the CEO and down to adopt behaviors that may not be immediately comfortable or they may not be immediately skilled at it. It takes time to get that skill and get to a point where it's second nature. But another reason, I think, is that people don't understand what it takes to cause values to be embedded in an organization through its people. It's not just the leaders going off in a room and coming up with four to a dozen values and putting them up on the wall. And then I hate this phrase, and it often comes from human resources. We're going to roll out our values program. And what they mean is roll over. It's just going to spread over everyone and they'll disseminate information. <clears throat> but there's there's no participation, really, no active involvement. It takes active involvement. At WD-40, The proposed values were sent out to all the employees globally, translated into seven languages, and invited input what do you think, do these make sense, are you aligned with them, what else would you recommend? Uh, Feedback was given, senior leaders got that feedback, talked about it. And then once we got through that iterative process, a manageable number of values that seemed to be widely adoptable. How do we define them behaviorally? So we had to go to that next step. How do you know it when you see it? Well, the first value of WD-40 is do the right thing. Easy to say, hard to define. So we had to take some time and give examples of what doing the right thing means. And also an avenue to debate it. Because it's not easy to come up with what the right thing is. And it may not be uh, an easy process for a group of people to agree on that. And that has to be educated and so said, it's not going to be easy. We're going to continue to do it until we find the right answer to what is right. That type of involvement, a lot of leaders shy away from. They see it as a distraction of time and energy away from the core, core uh, purpose of the business and possibly dilutive of achieving the financial objectives. <clears throat> the irony is that just like when you're building a house, if you take the time to plan, draw the plans, Make sure the tolerances stack up, the materials are right. And as you begin to create something, you measure very carefully, and you might do it two or three times before you start nailing and sawing. Well, that's that same kind of effort. Once you do it and you do it right, it now has legs that can last decades, literally. So that reduces the amount of time you have to spend later on employee conflicts, on high turnover, on misalignment of objectives and a whole host of other dysfunctional issues. So the leader has to recognize this is an architectural challenge. And therefore we need to take time to design correctly and then implement carefully.
0: Yeah. So it's, I mean, despite the the kind of the joke I make about value definition and and rollout, and it sounds like that, that is the right place to start. And like, that is the the foundation just, it needs to be approached correctly and thoroughly.
1: Exactly. It is step one. And it starts with uh, the business owners. If it's a private company, uh, certainly with the CEO and then senior leaders, There, that's where it starts, but it doesn't stop there. It has to bubble up from the bottom as well. As people get the opportunity to participate in defining values and what they mean, that automatically increases engagement. Because one of the other factors in engagement is a sense of the ability to influence their world, autonomy and influence. So if they have a say in what our values are and they feel like their voice is heard and reflected in those values, that automatically increases their connectivity with the organization and the glue that makes them feel engaged.
0: Yeah, and that, that piece of uh, defining the behaviors and understanding what what it looks like, what it looks like and knowing what when you see it like it might be easy to gloss over but again I guess I can only speak anecdotally because I have my own experience and I haven't actually studied this that that well but like that that's been such an important piece for me to feel like I'm actually I have a clear understanding and I'm able to lead in a way that's consistent with our values right and that you know you have something like you have do the right thing right like that that can mean a lot of different pe- things to a lot of different people and like any any good value like you want it to be specific and hopefully not too too probable. like it, it should have some specific behaviors so that you know like these are the things that work because when you look to recognize like course correct when things aren't right or recognize when things are right having those behaviors that you can look for and point to at least personally, has been so valuable rather than kind of having this abstract two-word, three-word value that you can point to.
1: And and you just mentioned another key element as you've applied it is how do we use these to make decisions? And that's another part of implementing it into the culture is at WD-40, the values were taught in strategic thinking coursework and how to make business analytical uh, conclusions. It was used in how do we pick suppliers? How do we pick customers? What products do we create that fit these values? What kind of internal philosophy should we have about leadership and are they consistent with our values? And then every person's quarterly performance dialogue with their coach, as we call them, would include a section on where the employee revealed how they lived the values with a few examples during the course of the last three months. And it was rich dialogue about keeping those those values alive and demonstrating them.
0: Yeah, and that, that's that's such an important, obviously an important piece here. And but like actually putting those into the decision, right? So like we maybe I'd be curious to get your your thought on like how to, how to think about this. But like we we when we're working with customers, right? And we have certain situations that come up, like. There's always, almost always, opportunities to either embody our values or behave differently. Like there's rational decisions that can be made on either side of of the coin. It seems like I don't know. It's not necessarily always obvious to behave exactly in the in line with the way that you uh, that you aspirationally want to, right? So like it, even the, even when you go through the upfront foundational work, like it's it's not just you know downhill skiing from there like it seems like it takes continuous effort absolutely and so one uh one thing that's really interesting to me, how how do you think about combining personal values especially as as a leader and the organizational value so something like a leadership point of view can you, you talk about that and expand on, on how that uh, comes into play
1: Sure. Well, first off, you don't expect a person's individual values to be confined to only those that the corporation has collectively defined and wants to pursue. And and even so, there are other values that are at play in organizations that don't make it to the wall. And they're they're still important in how people agree to interact with each other. So I would say whatever conscious values are broadly adopted, defined, and collectively created, They should be the the major guideposts, but they're not exclusive or exhaustive. Now, with that said, every human being has a a wider range of values than any company could possibly incorporate in in all of their stated, collectively adopted values. The, The key is to not have values in conflict with the organization, but also recognize that everyone's different. Everyone has their own set of values as well. And you mentioned the leadership point of view to your listeners. That's uh, a methodology for a leader to explore their own thinking, their own history, their own values and their own philosophy of leadership. Uh, it came to us from the Blanchard companies, uh, a key partner at WD-40 and developing our leadership philosophies, going back to when Gary first met Ken Blanchard in 1999. So, I'll add uh, an example from my own life where I might have a value that isn't necessarily uh, additive to the company's values or in conflict. So one of the values I've had in life is that I want to experience new things more than I want to have new things. Less materialism, more experiential values in life. That's not in conflict with W40's values nor is it necessarily supportive of any one of those because it's more of an individual value that doesn't relate to my positive lasting relationships with others. Uh, and doing the right thing for me personally would include climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. That wouldn't be someone else's value, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's not in conflict with our collective values. So humans are rich and varied, and that should be allowed as long as they don't conflict with the agreed collective values.
0: And how? Maybe it'd be interesting to explore explore a bit further, like what uh, leadership philosophy, right? So, uh, and I think you you have some good examples uh, in, in in your book of like this this question of like, hey, what what what's your philosophy on, on leadership, right? Like, you, you ask someone. That, if someone's new to leadership, they probably don't have one, right? or they probably or probably haven't thought about that. And I guess, can you expand on like why why does that why does that matter, and why is it worthwhile for a leader to understand their philosophy?
1: Well, a, a leader affects others by how they choose to behave, and that means that there is a role of leadership, and just like in the theater, that role means. What's my script? What's my environment, my blocking? What's the soundtrack? What's the lighting? What's the plot? Uh, Where is this story going? And how do I change myself to increase the chances that the people who rely on me for leadership are more capable of achieving not only the company's objectives, but their own personal aspirations as well? So... That's my philosophy of leadership, and it's the one I've observed to be the most effective. So by asking people what your philosophy of leadership is, the first time they do that, it may, as you said, because of inexperience or the first time they thought of it, it might be something where there's not a lot on the page. But then you take it to the next step. It's, well, what do you think it ought to be? Who are the leaders that you've really liked working for, and why was that? Who are the ones that didn't provide you a positive experience, and why was that? So thinking through those things allows a person to now start to consciously select their own behavior. And consciously selecting your behavior is a fundamental skill set of leadership.
0: Consciously selecting your own, and what what goes into the ability and the skill set, right to so that that is. A learned skill right to consciously consciously select your own behavior that's what you said right right can you you expand on that a bit further
1: well it starts with being egoless if you interact with someone else and you're their leader they rely on you for that leadership service and you're reacting to a, a momentary mistake that they made or a downturn in the market and you allow yourself to react from your emotional self, which is our lower brain centers that are more instinctive and survival-oriented, then it's almost always the case that that emotional reaction is going to push people away from you because they'll receive it as an attack, rightly so. That's an unthinking response. If, on the other hand, you realize that I'm only going to make this worse if I express my anger, how can I approach this without my own fear because now I have to work late or my bonus is at risk because of what this employee did or didn't do? How, what kind of behavior should I demonstrate in order to increase the chances that they learn from the mistake, figure out how to fix it, doesn't happen again, and they stay engaged? They still want to be here. Because if I don't do things that result in those responses, and use my my anger in the moment to make me feel better, they may not leave right away physically, but they'll leave mentally,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they'll start thinking, "I don't have enough work-life balance. I want to work forty hours a week. I don't want to give another minute to this asshole that just treated me that way." Yeah, I mean, Sorry what? For the I- anger. <laughs> no
0: you're good so i mean so assuming that someone's listening to this they have the self-awareness to realize maybe that not in 100 percent of the situations are they able to make this conscious decision do you have any resources that you would point i mean so victor frankel comes up in my mind as, as you're talking right the exactly the, uh what the, the space between simu- stimulus and response something to, to that extent so that that's but what do you have any specific resources or things that you would point someone to who has a desire to learn the skill and realizes that it's a skill that they need to develop.
1: Well, thank you for pointing out Viktor Frankl, because uh, he's the all-time heavyweight champion of choosing your behavior in the most extreme circumstances. And what he said is that independent of your environment, you might be a prisoner like he was in three concentration camps as a Jew in, in Nazi Germany. But he said between that stimulus, which unthinkingly you might react to, and the response, you can pause, you can take a moment, and then make a decision about how to respond, and that is the freedom that you have in life that no one can take away from you. So that concept alone at least gets you started. Then you can start to examine and understand your own brain as a human being. The owner's manual of the brain is over on the shelf here, and I've referred to it edition after edition as a way of understanding my own mind and body as well as others, the more you understand about how the brain works, the easier it is for you to use that conscious part of your brain and less likely that you'll be reacting from your subconscious, which is emotions, or from your unconscious, which is habit. The more you engage that conscious mind, the prefrontal cortex, and your ability to be objective about even your own involvement, the practice then makes it easier. But it starts with understanding simply that, that my brain and my mind is made up of three different levels, only one of which is available to me to talk about. So how do I get more of my brain able to be accessed by my conscious mind? It starts with understanding simply the principles of human behavior. And we taught that at WD-40 in our leadership development coursework. There was a whole section on psychology of leadership.
0: And- I guess double clicking the owner's manual to the brain, like that's the name of a book. Yes. Owner's manual to the to the brain. Okay, I'll I'll provide a link uh, link in here. And I guess the last question. So this is a, I don't know, it's a topic. I mean, we you and I have talked a lot about. So so no surprise to you, but um, for anyone listening, this is just super interesting to me. So I'll ask one one follow up question. Um, how do you feel? So like physical training is a space where I think i get a lot of value of of learning this skill set so like i was uh just a couple days ago i was on stationary bike doing I don't know, max heart rate like really painful strenuous exercise and i can't do this all the time like I, I i always find myself getting stuck in loops where i'm not doing it well but like there was a moment during the hardest part of that where i was able to zoom back and be like zoom out and like i could feel myself tensing and being zoom out and be like whoa let's actually pay attention to what I'm physically feeling right here and like check in on the different aspects of my feeling my legs and the sensations in my body. And like unconsciously, like I switched from a grimace to a smile and I'm like, well, that's actually, it's a weird experience, but it's not like this has to like, this has to be pain necessarily like this. And then I went back and I mean, it's not, again, not something that I, I can do often, but like I look at those experiences and the ability to, have some type of physical discomfort and choose a response to that, I think is valuable training for the emotional spot. But how how do you think about that?
1: I I think that's a wonderful example of what we're talking about, pulling out of the emotional subconscious, the one that is subjective experience of discomfort and being more objective and looking at it as if you're outside of your own body. That is excellent practice. Uh, I would say the same thing in my years ago experience climbing mountains where it's excruciating, every step is fighting for oxygen and all of your muscles are completely exhausted, you've got another 10,000 feet to go. You have to take your mind away from that and look at it from the outside in order to keep going. So I think that is the physical experience of drawing yourself out of a discomforting exertion is a good practice for that. Absolutely.
0: And yeah, and so I guess then zooming back out of this this conversation, and I think this expands on this topic of why why culture can be difficult. And this, I mean, I'm on a journey here. I guess like just about everyone is, but I'm very much on a, a learning journey here of actually putting this in practice and and building a, a a positive engaged culture. But one of the things that has struck me over time and can, continues to add up is like this is it takes holistic. System level effort, right? Like the stuff that we're talking about here, this psychology of leadership, like this isn't a nice to have. This is part of the puzzle, right? It's not, you start with this core foundation of values, then that has to proliferate into the way decisions are made. You mentioned about who you work with, suppliers, customers, the way meetings are run, the way you recognize people, the way you do performance reviews, compensation structure, recruiting, the way you're setting expectations and accountability. Like, all of these pieces, I think, need to come together and be executed well if you're actually going to reliably build this positive engine and, and culture. Can can you talk about how you think about this and the you know, the, the system level effects here?
1: Well, it, you've summarized it very well, and it's, it's the reason why I wrote the book. It, this isn't a plug for my personal income. But this book was designed for a conference we did in October so that people had a takeaway that talked about the different elements of the engine, just as you outlined. It does take a systemic approach because you could do just great in this one area, like how we do performance reviews, and you might do really badly in selecting people to bring into your company that are not really matched to your values. And so who you hire becomes your future. That's why as you point out, hiring is such a critical element. It's not just about their technical competencies, it's about their character and their alignment of values to at least not be in contrast to it. But all of those elements affect the six factors of engagement, and yes, it does take a systemic approach. And you asked earlier why why it's so difficult for companies to do this. I think one of the reasons why engagement isn't higher is because, Each one of these six factors, if you remember the old uh, jugglers on the variety shows where they had a plate spinning on top of this pole. Well, you get a couple plates spinning. Now you've got to put up a new one, get it started. I've got to go back to the first one, keep that spinning. And how many plates can you keep spinning before one falls? Well, there are six plates to spin, and you have to keep them all spinning at the same time to result in consistent, very high engagement and someone's got to pay attention to that and it's got to be the senior leadership at least so yeah. it's tough and that's why a lot of leaders they look at it and they go that's too much effort or i don't really think that's necessary we've been we've done fine so far and they'll rationalize away the the need for it or they don't have a long-term horizon The average tenure of CEOs in public companies is seven years. Gary Ridge was 25 years as a CEO. So he wasn't afraid to start initiatives that took years to implement and years more to see the results of. It depends on the leaders and the owner's time horizon a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, maybe elaborating on the the plates example, like, it seems like there's several things that could make the whole system fall apart, right? Like re- recruiting or like hiring the ability to bring in people who embody your values or at least don't contradict them or oppose them. It depends on you having a pipeline of people who you can bring in to support the business, right? So, like I've been in situations in the past where you need ten people. you don't have ten people on the bench. You're going to take the next the first ten people who you either turn down the business and can't execute on it or, you accept whoever will come through the door and do the work for you, and suddenly you've lost that filter, right? And, and that's just what you got. To, do you have any other examples there? But I, I think like there's, there's several places where this whole thing can fall apart if you don't do it well.
1: Well, just to stick on that one for a minute, that's exactly right. And that's why, as you and I have talked previously, continual recruiting and building a, a stable of already qualified, already values-aligned potential people to join your company so that when it comes time to staff up, you're not starting from scratch and shopping while you're hungry because then you'll go for the sugar and not for mm-hmm. the substance. Uh, compensation is another area where you start to do that wrong and it sends messages that are counter to the good messages you've sent on your culture. Uh, things like if you wait until someone threatens to leave before you give them a pay increase, even though you already know that the market has moved significantly and you you just said, well, if they don't ask, I'm not going to adjust their pay. That tells people that, well, you have to complain before anybody recognizes that you deserve an adjustment. Uh, picking people to be part of a special group of high-potential participants in developmental experiences and that selection process isn't built on objective performance. It's built on relationships, perhaps. That's another negative message to the type of organization where people want to be. Uh, most people can understand a labor market impact on their pay, and they can greatly appreciate a meritocracy where they can earn what they can demonstrate their contributions and capabilities are. As soon as it becomes purely subjective based on relationships or erroneous assessment of their performance, then they disconnect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another area that I think is important is whether or not leaders view themselves as servants or if they view themselves as a source of authority. If their primary view of their own role is to make decisions versus the primary role as a teacher and developer of others, that can get, get you off track as well.
0: Yeah, maybe quickly, and then we'll we'll wrap up. But thinking about the optimistic and the, the the, so we're talking a lot about the ways in which culture can fail to do what, you're, what you desire to do. Um, on the other side, I imagine, and I don't think it's that hard to to envision a uh, a flywheel, type, like a Jim Collins flywheel type yeah. system that can be built here when this is done right. Right, you have the right people who do great things and create a culture where people want to work, and you. Can, can can you talk about that aspect? So, like, once this is up and running, what can this look like, and how? What does the effort look like to sustain?
1: Well, you never take your eye off the the objective, and you have to com- continually question whether or not your good results are truly the results that you have, and whether or not you're doing things that might erode them over time. So, a lot of self analysis. We would do an engagement a survey every two years, but Leaders were always deeply involved with everyone, and we would pay attention to the signs. We also advertised and went through multiple employee meetings over a period of two years in anticipation of leadership changing at the top, a process of disseminating the responsibility for the culture to everyone. It wasn't just Gary's responsibility. It wasn't just mine. It wasn't just the trading block leaders. It was everyone's responsibility. And everyone had an accountability for continuing to keep it alive. We did that for two years for a specific reason, because we were going to have senior leadership turnover due to retirements, myself included. And it's that systematic approach that we've been talking about that does create a flywheel. It makes the culture self-sustaining. Now all of those people who are interviewing folks to come into the company, now they think they're a gatekeeper for the culture. They don't pass it off to HR or to their senior leaders, and that keeps that sustainability of, of the culture going.
0: Yeah, cool. So a couple, kind of, maybe last couple questions and closing closing thoughts here. So, so the uh, first of all, the, the book mentioned engage how WD forty company built the engine of positive culture. I know Stan, you mentioned you didn't necessarily, not you didn't. Uh, necessarily make this to, to sell a ton of copies it was for the, the culture forum which was in- incredible and i was fortunate enough to attend and get a lot of good benefit out there but i also recommend if any of the stuff you heard here is, is interesting if you want to learn more if you're interested in building a positive company like this is i think a must-have book that you can find on amazon it's uh yeah there's a lot more detail and depth into Several specific topics about how you actually do these things and the things that it takes to to build this, this positive culture and this engaged culture that we're talking about here. Um, is there anything, Stan, that you'd think of? This is such a tough question because everyone's at a different spot in the journey. But is there anything tactical that you'd you'd recommend someone? So say someone's listening to this. Yeah, they've gone through the effort. They resonate with some of this. They're trying to make this effort to go from having defined values into having a Culture that's really embodied and where people are engaged. Uh, where, where, where do you start?
1: Well, this is going to sound self serving, and I don't mean it that way, but that's a main reason why I wrote the book for not just a forum, but I didn't see a lot out there that talked about the specific components of the system that creates high engagement. And high engagement means not just better performance, but much higher quality of life for everyone. Why can't you have both? Why can't you like going to work? As you said, it's fun for you to solve problems that relate to a larger purpose. So that's why I wrote the book. And I think I would recommend it for people who just want to get an overview of all the different components and how maybe one company and others from my experience that I cited in the book and how it was applied. And then just start. Start learning about your own philosophy, Start learning about whether or not you want to be a leader. It's not for everyone. It's, if you do it as a certain leader, <clears throat> it's a lot of work. It's extremely fulfilling, but it's not a path for everyone. Uh, also, there are a lot of other thinkers out there. What I've found to be the, the two most important contributors to what successes I may have had in this regard is learning about psychology, human behavior, and learning about business. As I say in the book, and, and I think you would agree with this, Brandon, you also have to have a good strategy, an effective business model, and there has to be a market for what you offer. You know, that That's fundamentally part of a high-engaged organization where they have optimism about the future for themselves and the company. Mm-hmm. But just start. Start with yourself. There's, try engage as a beginning. Learn about human behavior. You don't have to go to get a bachelor's in it, necessarily. But I would say, focus on research that is empirical, not research about people's opinions. The kind of research where a hypothesis was tested by manipulating independent variables to see whether the hypothesis was true or not. Empirical research. There's far too much research that's simply opinion getting and everybody's opinion remember is only one third of their brain <laughs> there's still that subconscious and unconscious that means they don't know themselves that well so self-reports research is this valuable empirical
0: this much yeah And maybe just expanding you're highlighting quickly that that point on like one of the reasons i get so much value out of our conversations is you understand the whole business. And that's what, when we're talking about system level stuff here, right? You can't, I don't, I don't want this to be disparaging, but you can't just be thinking about HR function. Like it's all of this comes together. And I guess the way I think about it, and part of the reason why I went from, I mean, engineering to business development and sales and marketing, and then to business leadership is I, the guy Seth Godin has tremendously impacted me. And one of the biggest lessons from him is if you want to do good at marketing, build a great product and service, right? It's not, yes, you need to do everything else and you need to get it in front of the right people, And you, but it needs to start with, you better have something that's worth talking about and worth selling. And I think that's the same thing in culture. Like you, you need a business that actually does something meaningful and you win, right? And you. I guess I don't like the term win and loss, but like you're doing something meaningful.
1: Those are table stakes, right? They're either product or service that is in demand and you can provide it at a competitive performance, price, and delivery. If you have that, now you can play the game of business. Next is what kind of an organization do you want to have and how do you want to treat people on the way?
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great place to leave. it. Well, Stan, I really appreciate the time. This is a lot, lot of fun fun for me and uh, yeah, great great stuff. Get the book um, if, you're, if you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you, Stan.
1: Thank you so much, Brian, for the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stan Seewich. So, what stands out? And there's, there's really two things I want to hi- highlight. So, the first is how much uh, this, this topic means to me. So, I cover in the Future Mobility podcast here and in my work with Edison in the contract manufacturing space, I'm focused on safer, more sustainable, more effective, more accessible transportation. Those are topics I care about. I care about. Moving goods and people in a way that works well today is fulfilling, contributes to society and also doesn't do some damage to others either today or in the future. That's that's meaningful work that I really enjoy and believe in. What I believe in even more is making the lives of the people around me better. Making some positive impact on the people I interact with and ideally through a chain of events, helping them then proliferate that and making some positive impact on society. So starting, you know, with our, and it starts with our team. And then from there, the people we work with, our community, and hopefully from their society. And that is one of, if not the most exciting and impactful thing that I think I can do. And this, conversation is is at the heart of that how do you create an engaged organi- organization where people not only do great work but they're they enjoy it they're fulfilled by that work they become better people they enjoy what they're doing they show up better in the workplace as well as outside of the workplace that contribute you to something bigger than themselves that's having a positive impact on society and that that's incredibly meaningful for me so I I hope I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I I mentioned at the beginning this this type of stuff really gets me going and is so impactful. It's Stan is a huge has had a huge impact on me, on Edison, on our sister company PJ Wallbank Springs, and uh, yeah. Hopefully, this just just a drop in the pan here, but hopefully you enjoyed this as well. And I, I would say I have incredibly high expectations when I speak to. An advisor or someone like that, and it's it's very rare that I that those expectations are met, let alone exceeded. And Stan is almost he's he's constantly exceeding my expectations when I come to him with problems and questions and things like from his past experience, from the way he's thought about things, the knowledge base he has, it's incredible what he can do to contribute in this space and the work and yet yeah, certainly get the book Engage. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, that that'll set you off on on the right path or at least get you started and yeah, re- reach out to Stan or myself if you want to get in touch with, with Stan, because I, I highly recommend it. And I guess the, other, the last thing I was going to say is we, we talked about this a bit, but there's, there's so much intentional effort that's required to do this in a repeatable and reliable way. If you want to build a positive culture and benefit from all the things that come with that, you don't want to get lucky doing it, right? And you can't just focus on the surface level stuff or the obvious stuff, but you have to think holistically throughout the way the business operates to actually do this and build a robust system that's repeatable, it's going to survive and with and you know, actually grow better as hardships come up. And all that and it's it's worth the intentional effort so i've gone gone longer than usual here hopefully you're uh, not too sick of hearing me talk yet but um, yeah appreciate you listening again hopefully it's not just me but this means a lot to me and that this topic is one that i, I believe in deeply so uh, really appreciate it and as always there's more to come next week thank you for listening to the future mobility podcast brought to you by edison manufacturing and engineering if you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products and annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility Podcast.